Hey, you found us. This is a podcast of Carbon Valley Lutheran Church in Firestone, Colorado, just north of Denver. We here at CVL firmly believe that community is built, not found, that it's local, not virtual. So we encourage everyone to find a local church and help them build their community and be a service to them. With that said, we pray that these podcasts supplement and not replace your spiritual journey. If you'd like to learn more about us at CVL, you can check us out on Facebook or on the web at carbonchurch.com, or even better, stop by in person. We worship at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings. May the Lord bless your day. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ, on this wonderful Sunday morning. Uh, happy that you're here today. Um, as I mentioned, we're, we're starting our kind of systematic study of the epistles of John. So epistle is a fancy church word for letter. So the letters of John, specifically 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And, and those three books have kind of a consistent theme throughout them. Um, on some level, John is, is trying to, um, over and over again, assure us of the love of God. And so that's kind of our overarching theme is going to be um, the assurance of our God above. But today, John starts it out talking about this concept of, of light and darkness. Uh, he starts it out talking about what it means to live in the light. And that's a little bit harder, I think, to, to unwrap. And we're going to see that, that John does that in our text today. But sometimes the absence of something uh, gives us greater sense of when it's actually there. Uh, this came true in the late 1950s or actually um, early 1950s. Um, after the Korean War. So there, there were POWs that were returning to America during the Korean War, and some of those POWs uh, had seemingly been, been brainwashed by the Korean government. So they'd come home and, and they, would, they would make these statements and denounce capitalism and denounce America, and, and almost 180 degree from, from what they were prior. And these were fierce warriors. These were, these were military men that were well-trained, and yet they were coming back and they were changed. Something was drastically different. And so our government, our military, saw these men and women coming back and the drastic change that had come over them. And, and um, that kind of piqued the interest of our government to investigate what exactly was happening, right? How were these men being brainwashed? How were these men being changed um, um, so incredibly when they came back? So that spurred a little bit of interest, especially from the CIA. So post, or early 1950s, post-Korean War, CIA instituted a project called Project Bluebird. And the whole point of Project Bluebird was to try to figure out um, um, how we as humans kind of work and how taking away certain senses, depriving people, depriving humans of the things they need, how doing that can actually change their personality. And so they jumped into this thing called Project Bluebird. It was classified, it was top secret. Uh, the leader of it, uh, his name was actually Donald Hebb. Uh, and, and so Donald Hebb was tasked with that, was saying, okay, what happens to the human psyche when, when you deprive it of certain things, right? So what happens to, to people when they're deprived of food, when they're deprived of water, when they're deprived of light when they're deprived of other relationships. So that's what Donald jumped into. So when you want to figure new things out about humans, what do you do? You put up signs on college campuses 
and say, we need you for a study. Okay, so any of you that are in college, don't be so quick to sign up for stuff, right? So Donald did that. So he put up signs and he said, hey, we're looking for, for participants for this study. Now, they didn't know the full depth of Project Bluebird, uh, but they were paid a hefty sum of $20. Okay, yeah. He actually had a lot of participants. So. <laughs> um, but here's what he did. So he, he got these, these, these volunteers in, and he put them in, in eight by eight rooms that were completely dark, right? Uh, the walls were, were coated with uh, like acoustic dampening materials, so like fabric and stuff like that. Um, in addition, the participants, when they were inside, had to wear um, blackened goggles, so that was what was on their face. Uh, on their hands and all the way up to their shoulders, they wore cotton gloves to try to decrease the sensation of, of tactile sensation of almost anything in the room. Uh, they had to wear uh, sound-canceling earmuffs on their ears. And... This was the extent of the, the experiment, and I have to think, I really pray that Donald Hebb and those that were in charge like thought through the consequences of this, but I'm not sure they really did, because they just said, let's take away everything that a human kind of needs and put them in a room and then see what happens. So that's, that's what they did. So they put these participants in there, no human contact, no noise, no sound, no light, no food or no water, and they told the participants, just stay in there as long as you can. And so a pretty fascinating thing happened. As you can imagine, when it started out, it wasn't a big deal. In fact, maybe some of you requested that for Father's Day. Just a, <laughs> just a nice, quiet room by yourself, right? Uh, so they started out, and, and things seemed to be going just fine. Um, but as the hours ticked on, things started to get a little bit interesting. So um, they, they had to report back, at least through the intercom, as to what they were feeling and what was going on. And so they had feelings of anxiety and depression and fear. All of those things started coming up. But what was fascinating was that the complexity of the human mind, the absence of stimuli, didn't mean that the, the human mind just sat there and did nothing, right? And that's I, almost, I think, what they were, they were hypothesizing, was that if you take away stimuli, then what's going to happen? Well, the mind just kind of goes into this comatose, it just sleeps, kind of. That's at least what they thought would happen. But what's really fascinating of the human psyche and the human mind, and I think in us as humans in general, is that when those things were taken away, there, there isn't just a void. That our human minds actually start to fill in that emptiness. And so these participants were reporting back to the control booth, and, and um, fear and anxiety and all those things were first, but then they started reporting seeing images. And at first it was just um, kind of dots, right? Dots that they could see in this, in this darkness, right? They would see dots. Um, and then it started turning into geometric patterns. And so now they're describing these, these geometric patterns that are going across their vision. And then some of the participants started describing these geometric patterns were turning into actual images. So uh, one lady had an image of an old man um, in a bathtub that was driving it like a car. So that was, that was one of her images that she had another one. Uh, had an image of a parade of squirrels, like running in front of them, right? Um, and and the, probably the scariest one that uh, went the longest, uh, one of the men actually had a hallucination, an image of himself 
which was disconcerting enough. But then at some point, as he stayed in there, he ceased being able to tell where the hallucination image began and his own body ended. So they almost kind of melded together. And so this wasn't going real well, right? Uh, Donald Hebb realized that this was not a good thing, that some of their psyches were starting to break. So they let some of these participants out, the ones that requested to go out, and it kind of got even worse. So it like spilled over um, outside of the, the isolation booth. So they let one of them said, I got to go to the bathroom. So he went to the bathroom and they heard screaming. And uh, they, they realized that the guy had gotten lost in the bathroom. So his, he was so disoriented from having been in the room, he got to the bathroom, he couldn't find his way out. He, he was screaming to someone to help. And another man came out um, and he started his drive home and he immediately crashed his car in the parking lot because he was so disoriented still from the experience. Now here's the point. Um, not to, not to um, um, make participants in a study like that, uh, um, not to break a, a human psyche, but I think the really fascinating thing is, is that there is no such thing as a void in our lives. There's no such thing as a void in your life mentally, um, psychologically. And I would argue there's no such thing as a void in your life spiritually. In fact, St. Augustine has a famous quote that talks about that. He says, there is a hole in our, a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And the only thing that can fill it is the eternal God above. That's really what John is looking at here today. When he starts talking to us, and we're going to get into it, but he talks about light and darkness. He's talking about what we fill our spiritual hole with. Right? There's no such thing as just emptiness or void. We always fill in with something. John's encouragement to us today is going to be that we fill that with, specifically with Christ. And so let's jump into our text. Um, you're welcome to follow along with me. But today, um, because this is the very first sermon in this series, I'm going to give you a little bit longer kind of historical context and, and biography of John, who's the writer of our text. So let's, let's start with that. I'm just going to read verses uh, 1 and 2 for you here. It says this, Paul says, or John rather, says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, and we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim it, we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. So, um, so John, the gospel writer John, is the writer of these books here today in our text here today. And John wrote five books of the Bible, and you can probably guess one is the Gospel of John, right? So that's his book. And then the three that we're going to go through subsequently in these Sundays, so First um, John, Second John, and Third John, which are letters of John or epistles. And then he wrote one more book in the Bible. Does anyone know it, what it is? Revelation. Yeah. So, okay. So it's, the reason I say that is not to give like a full bibliography of what John wrote in the New Testament, but it's really important because um, John was with Jesus and wrote that gospel witness, the book of John. He wrote these letters in between, and then John wrote the last book in the New Testament of the Bible. And so if there was ever a disciple, if there was ever someone on the pages of Scripture that had a, like a full generational um, view of who Jesus was, it's John. And our first couple verses actually sound a little bit familiar, don't they? Um, if you remember gospel, the Gospel of John, these 
John, 1 John, almost starts out in the exact same way. And how does John start this text? We might think these are kind of throwaway sentences, but put yourself in the historical context of the writer of John. John says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, and our hands have touched. So in a very real practical way, what is John saying to us? He's saying to those that he's writing to, Jesus was alive and he was real. John is saying to the readers here, don't forget who we're talking about. Because remember, we walked with him, we ate with him, we saw him die on a cross, we saw him rise again from the dead, we saw him ascend into eternity. And so when John says, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have heard with our ears, and what we have touched... That wasn't a figment of your imagination. That wasn't a a fancy created story in your psyche. Jesus was real. He lived. He breathed. He died. He rose again. John's kind of impressing that on us. Now, we may ask ourselves the question, why? Well, I think it's because of where John is at historically and contextually in the writing of these books. Uh, history tells us, scripture tells us, John was the last living disciple. So imagine what John would have seen in his lifetime, right? So he, remember, he was, he was the last living disciple. And if you remember, he was also one of the first disciples that were chosen by Jesus. So John had been with Jesus from the very beginning of his ministry. And now he is the last disciple that is living. Now, remember everything that happens in between then. Well, it's easy to. It's the entire New Testament, right? The entire New Testament happens in between there. So John had seen this thing called Christianity, these followers of Christ from the beginning to the very end. But imagine what he had seen. He'd seen men and women killed for their faith, right? He'd seen his fellow disciples, his fellow apostles martyred for their faith. Many of them, most of them, were killed, many of them crucified, some of them sawn in two, some of them boiling oil poured on. So John had watched all of his dear brothers in Christ, all of his fellow apostles, all of his fellow pastors be wiped out for faith in Christ. He'd seen men, women, and children lose their life because they professed Jesus as the resurrected Lord and Savior. And so John is coming to us And he's telling us not to forget, right, what these witnesses saw, felt, touched, and heard. Now, what's really fascinating about John, um, I mentioned he wrote the last book in the Bible in Revelation. But the end of John's life, he was exiled to an island called Patmos. And um, if you look up Patmos on, on Google and stuff, it actually looks rather luxurious, right? So you're like, huh, nice vacation spot, right? But this was not a vacation for John. He was, he was exiled there. He was trapped there. He was, he, he was not allowed to leave there. And history tells us that John, at the end of his life, um, actually went blind. And so it's really fascinating when we read from John, and he talks about seeing Christ with his eyes. And when he talks about Jesus being the light in the darkness, um, tradition in history tells us that John, at the end of his life, blind old John was led by the hand down to the market square on a regular basis and people would gather around him and he would tell them about Jesus, right? 
So you've got the last living disciple telling anyone that would listen, blind, <laughs> about who Jesus was. Now why would John do that? Well, my guess is he maybe had some of the same fears that sometimes we have as parents, grandparents, or great-grandparents. I think there's truth in understanding that John may very well have been afraid that the tangible, real resurrection of Jesus Christ, this good news of sins forgiven, I think John may have had fears that the news of Jesus would simply die out, that it would disappear. Because my guess is he had already started to see that in the generations that had come afterwards, uh, a fading of the memory of who Jesus was, what he had done, and forgiveness of sins in general. And I think we understand that, right? I mean, that's why, that's why we teach our kids history. And we, you know what's even better than history? Is living history, right? That's why in schools at times they'll bring in uh, um, um, World War II veterans, uh, Korean War vets, Vietnam veterans. That's why in schools at times we'll bring in last remaining survivors of the Holocaust. Why do we do those things for the generations that come after us? We do it so they don't forget. That's what John's talking about in our text here today. And um, on some level I'm wondering if maybe that's why God gave John the revelation uh, in the book of Revelation to reassure him and us as well that this wasn't just going to fade away. But that's what John wanted to impress on his readers. And that's what he wants to impress on us as well. And here's the really remarkable thing. It worked. Because 2,000 years later, not on the island of Patmos, but under an awning on a construction site, we are listening and being strengthened and understanding the reality of who Jesus was. And so, I think that's the point of John's readings. Make sure that we, that you, that we don't lose sight of that forgiveness of sins. And so he kind of goes into three different points that I want to look at today. Um, and I'm going to go through them a little bit more quickly. Uh, but he's going to talk about this concept of fellowship, which sounds like a kind of a churchy idea, but this concept of fellowship, we'll talk about what that actually means. Uh, the second thing he's going to talk about are are claims that we make to ourselves either verbally um, or, or, um, or psychologically. So he's going to talk about claims that we make. And the last one he's going to talk about is just that concept of Christ being a light in the darkness. So those three things. So fellowship, um, the claims we make, and ultimately the light that we are able to live in. Um, so now I'm going to jump around just a little bit in our text. Uh, sometimes our biblical text kind of lay out sequentially, and I can read verse after verse for you. Um, they don't always lay out that way. And in fact, what's kind of interesting is John, as a writer, uh, um, quite often does what we would call more circular reasoning. So this is maybe more than what you want to know. But at being Western Europeans, we're kind of a little more um, used to, to um, linear, right? So points right down from top to bottom. John, quite often, and actually many of the Old Testament writers, in fact, most of the Old Testament, is not a linear top to bottom, but it's actually a, a circular, a circular um, discussion and, and argument. So that's how come the text from John is a little more circular in that regard. So I'm going to pick out some of those points. We're going to look at fellowship. Uh, we want to look at these claims, and then we'll look at the light. So 
You're welcome to follow along with me, jump around with me if you'd like. Um, so I'm going to read for us first, uh, first just verses four or three and four, which pick up that concept of fellowship. So John says this, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may, you may have fellowship with us and our fellowship with the Father and with, the, with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Okay, so what's John talking about when he talks about that concept of fellowship? Well, it's this, okay? It's this. It's, it's, it's coming together uh, around Christ and around the knowledge that our sins are forgiven. And so John, on some level, is talking to, to the church, but he's talking about something a little bit more deeply than that as well. So not just, we, we sometimes use, I think, that term in the church, fellowship is almost synonymous with like a potluck or food, right? And that, that is what it is, right? That's, that's part of it, right? But ultimately what John is talking about is, is that um, that fellowship only happens um, in this way when we understand that we have fellowship with our God above. And so that's really what John, John is saying to you. It's not, we like potlucks. We like, we like um, coming together with other people. But, but John is saying, um, we've got to understand that we have fellowship with our God above. And how does that happen? What happens through Christ? And so that's what John is doing. He's kind of gathering up these people and he's saying, you are connected to one another, even though you're from all different places over the world, even though you are from different socioeconomic strata, um, you're, you're men and women and you're, you're of high ranking and low ranking. Like, so John is saying you come from all over the place, but what brings you together is Christ and your fellowship with God above. Okay? So that's, that's the unifying concept that John's going to go back to over and over again. If you just wanted, um, if you just wanted good music, you can go to a concert, right? If you just wanted a little small talk, like you're really into small talk, right? Um, you can join a club of some sort. Facebook has all kinds of pages that you can join, right? Uh, if you just wanted to do charity work, there's lots of really good charities that you can join, right? You can build houses. You can give out food to the poor. So all of those things are good things, and I would argue some of the aspects of all those things happen here at CVL. But the most important thing that happens here at CVL, and the reason why you are here, and the motivation for your Christian living, is ultimately fellowship with your God above. Knowing that Jesus Christ has died for our sins, and is in fact here with us today. Where two or three gather together, Christ is with us. And so John kind of sets the motivation. He says, do not lose sight of what motivates our entire lives in Christian living. And ultimately, it's fellowship with our God above. Okay, so that's the very first one. But then he kind of goes into these, these if claims. Um, so he's on some level almost logically anticipating um, some, some uh, kickback a little bit from his audience and from us. So he goes into three different if claims. And this is where I start jumping around a little bit. So I'm going to read for you verse 6, verse 8, and verse 10. So it's every other. So John says this, If we claim to have fellowship with him, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live in the truth. Okay? So if claim number 1. Verse 8, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 
Okay, so if claim number two, here's the third one, verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and the word is not in us. Now, John's laying these things out because really he's anticipating maybe a little bit of pushback. And I think we can understand these if claims on some level, right? Um, I talked about in the introduction that the mind doesn't just go into like limbo without stimulation. It starts filling in other things. And so that's really what John is trying to fill in in our minds, the reality of the world in which we live, not the made-up reality that our minds would like to land on. Probably the biggest thing that each and every one of us try to avoid is exactly what John is talking about, that concept of sin. The reality that we are not perfect, the reality that we break promises to people that we claim to love more than anything in the world, the reality that, that sin affects us from the outside, but also we are quite often a part of that sin and affect others around us. And so on some level, that's what John is doing for us spiritually. He's taking off the goggles and the earmuffs, and he's laying out plainly before us um, that we are not perfect, that in fact we need a Savior. That's the good news that John follows up with. So he talks about those if claims, but then talks about Jesus as the light. So I'm going to finish uh, with verse 5. Uh, and verse 7 and verse 9. So again, we're skipping around a little bit. John says this, This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son purifies us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all righteousness. And so John answers the question of those if claims and ultimately points us to Jesus. It says, for us as Christians, when we walk in Christ, when we walk in his forgiveness, we have his light. And that light guides our every living. And that's what we have. That's what John desperately wanted the generations that came after him to be able to hold on to. It's called the gospel. And it's what you and I have. It means that our sins are forgiven. It means that we can exist in this life, not in a fairy tale world, not in a psychological made-up world, but we can exist in this world in a transparent way, in a real way, recognizing our own flaws, but most importantly, understanding that we have a God above who despite our flaws came to this earth, entered into our history, and willingly gave his life on the cross so that those flaws and those sins, and that brokenness would be forever healed in him. That's the message John dearly wants us to hold on to. The rest of his epistles are just going to drive that point home. That's the light that we get to live in. There's a parable that I heard, um, um, I think it was like an African parable, uh, about light and darkness. So this is how it goes. Um, there was a cave, and caves live underground, and caves are dark, right? And the cave only knew darkness, because that was the cave's 
life, right? That was all that the cave knew. Um, and so all that it knew for its entire life was darkness. But one day, the sunlight outside talked to the cave and said, why don't you come outside and see the light that's outside of the darkness? And the cave didn't know what the light was talking about or what the sun was talking about because all it had ever known was darkness. And so the cave went outside to the sunlight and it got out there and it was amazed because everything was bright and, you, and it could see everything and the light lit up the cave and lit up the darkness. And so the, for the first time in its light, life, the cave saw light. And the cave said to the sun, why don't you come with me into the darkness so you can see what I lived? And so the sun said, well, that sounds fair. You came into the light, so I'm going to come with you. So the sunlight came with the cave into the darkness. And you can figure out how the parable ends. But there was no darkness there because the sun was there. That's what John's teaching us today. When the sun is there, specifically Jesus Christ, there's no darkness. See, the forgiveness of Christ drives out darkness and it drives out sin, and it lights up our lives, and it gives us motivation for living lives that give God glory and honor. As we go on in our text, John's going to lay that out beautifully in the rest of our epistles. But the joy we have on this bright, sunny Sunday is to live in the light because Christ is our light. Amen. Thank you.